Daniel Keller, welcome back to the podcast. Daniel Keller is an influential artist, one of my favorite artists for many, many years. Uh, you are also a film director, a writer, a podcaster, a day trader and professional degen, <laughs> an aspiring <laughs> wargamer, uh, an accomplished lecturer and poster. And you are most recently the editor of Poetry for the New York Times. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Uh, what a huge... Crazy news. <laughs> crazy news. I'm going to have to learn a little bit more about poetry, got to admit. But, you know, there's just job openings. You got to take these opportunities when they come. So Between the New York Times and being the editor-in-chief for Art Forum, I just, I can't imagine how you're going to split the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your, <laughs> your schedule Yeah, you know, cool. I think uh, hopefully these AI tools are going to help me fill in the gaps. And I'll be able to do <laughs> multiple... <laughs> Full-time yeah. jobs. Yeah, um, that's the post you're going to learn about. Generally, yeah, going to be fine. Well, I think uh, both you and I end up in this kind of weird interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, political and cultural trend casting position. Uh, a lot of artists from our, I think I'm paraphrasing something you've said on a podcast in the past that a lot of artists from our generation were kind of miscellaneous creatives that ended up in the art world because the space allowed for you to do a lot of different things, but not necessarily being people whose sole goal was to make discrete art objects that hang on the wall of a white cube gallery space. Yes, People had all sorts of different interests that led them in different directions. I always felt a close affinity to your work and the freedom that you had exploring all of these different fields. I'm thinking specifically of a talk you gave at New Festival in 2016 which we have watched on the Twitch stream, which was also included in the syllabus, from sovereign individual to targeted individual, which was about an early look at filter bubbles and polarization on the internet before most of us even had that terminology to talk about it. At this point, I'm kind of reflecting on the past few years, and I feel like it is unclear whether we have reached like post-woke center synthesis, or if it's more polarized than ever. I guess, do you have thoughts about internet polarization, political polarization as it's panned out in the last, the, the yeah. 20 teens? Yeah. I mean, I think it has not stopped. That's, that's definitely clear. That mm. general trend has only become more and more exaggerated by further and further algorithmic siloing. And I think, of course, just about the Julian from, you know, Little Internet always says is sort of network physics or network dynamics. Um, sure. There are just, you know, certain incentives to, make, I think it's kind of akin to like Fisherian runaway evolution, which, you know, is what leads to, you know, peacock feathers, for instance, where there's a sort of like feedback loop where more and more extreme thought is rewarded by the network and gets pushed forward. And that dynamic is just like, I, it's physics, basically. And it's very hard to imagine how, you know, when the incentives are for attention, how how things could go very differently. And I think, yeah, the the for you pageification of culture has definitely become more and more intense. When I made that talk, TikTok didn't exist yet. Right, right. And the idea of like algorithmic first feeds that was sort of a new thing that people were worried about. And yeah, I think if you see the kinds of crazy ideology that gets pushed on TikTok and sort of, you know, ahistorical conspiracy theories, et cetera, it's, it's more <laughs> intense on that, on that platform than others. And it does kind of, yes. I get why uh, people are paranoid about 
TikTok being foreign influence, because it does seem like there is something unique to that that kind of algorithm there that is, is driving people more batshit crazy than other things. Yeah, it's it's hard to to make the argument without sounding a little bit conspiratorial, but you can certainly demonstrate that there is a wider wider parameters for political speech on TikTok right now versus other platforms, and even stuff that is conspiracy adjacent, like something silly and innocuous like Tartaria, for example, that can thrive on TikTok, but it is 10% dialed down or you know, uh, maybe a 10 to one ratio or 100 to one ratio less on places like Instagram and Twitter. But you look at TikTok and conspiracy adjacent content has like a hundred to one ratio in terms of its view numbers. Right. So there is there is something something different, and it's uh you know it's hard to say whether it's an op by the CCP to like burn American attention or to like <laughs> yeah. uh, just reduce our Gen Z to being like a historical uh, zero knowledge zero wisdom constituency. But there's definitely a difference in the TOS between those platforms. Right. And I think then you have just the the other platforms forced to compete with that dynamic and, you know, adopt some of those yeah. things. And, you know, and I think the other obviously big shift in social networking is Twitter becoming X and the kind of speech that you see there as opposed to before. Obviously, the Overton window is way wide open. You can pretty much be openly racist yeah. now. Uh, yeah. And I mean, honestly... I don't think that's all bad. It's bad in a way, but I do think that having some 4chan-like outlet is better than there being no outlet for any of that stuff and it becoming more and more forced into weird crevices. I think in general, it's better that it's out there in the public. That being said, you know, anti-Semitism is just, I'm reminded of it every day in one way or another, basically just Mm -hmm. like straight up it's in my feed. <laughs> and that is not something that used to be the case. So it's not very comfortable for me, I will say. But Sometimes when you show that material to a wide group of people, that can be important because a popular audience will reject those ideas because they disagree with them. But if they're quarantined to like a kind of secret, naughty, taboo section of the internet, they can kind of thrive and flourish in anonymity. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, I do think that's sort of what is happening with X is because like, you know, it's it's certainly X is not the town hall of the internet in the same way that Twitter was. Obviously, there's been a huge migration off of that platform. I don't know towards where in theory, blue sky and alternatives, but, you know, a lot of the left and liberals and, you know, corporate speech has has left and gone to threads, I guess, as well and stuff. And yeah. And yeah. so you're not gonna see the diversity. In a way, it's becoming that cloistered anonymous zone again. And so mm. maybe it's not so useful, but I can see both sides of that argument for sure. Well, I guess the the subtext to my question is that I felt within the last year specifically, there is this kind of center liberal backlash to some of the more extreme maximalist rhetoric that's come out in the last few years. Yes. So um, I'm just, I'm wondering if there's like an end of this trend cycle at some point that actually like reemerges from the center consensus. I look at things like Compact Magazine, which is you know, economically left, but culturally conservative, not in like a weird, you know, fringe internet way, but in aspiring to be more of a mainstream way. Yeah, um, that that might be appealing to some people who are just burnt out from the like, insanity of their newsfeed in the last few years. I mean, I can say personally, I feel in my my personal pendulum has swung definitely back towards uh, some type of we can call it radical center or just moderate center, actually. Um, and definitely, I feel that. I think that in general, there's probably clearly the Israel-Palestine question is very polarizing on the left. And I think leading toward, well, leading to more people becoming more left-wing and also I think some people 
well, especially Jews being swung back towards the center or the right and kind of realizing the context to the stuff that they were supporting and how it might affect them personally. I'll just say that, I guess, is a, is a neutral way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sort of the backlash against you know the squad, which I think probably a lot of progressive Jews, well, I'm sure there's a lot of them that are very, still every bit as supportive, but I, I definitely have noticed some, let's say, formerly self-identified progressive Jews being turned off by a lot of that rhetoric. If you think about, yeah, like not to get to JQ here, but if you think about the, uh, you know, impact that Jews have on, let's say, political fundraising and organizing, I think even a small defection of liberal Jews back towards the center or to the Republicans, that could have a very big realignment about politics in general, obviously a disproportionate one compared to other groups defecting. So I'm very curious to see kind of like what happens. I think that probably a lot of people will end up just, you know, vote blue no matter who, regardless of the Gaza question. But, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of people who stick to their words and won't vote for Biden because of his support for Israel. And what that will result in is is still very unclear to me. That seems to be like the biggest fracture fracture point right now. The realignment is a, a long process. It's a multi-decade process. It's like a generational process even. Each topic tends to chip away at this thing, but the potential for a political realignment, I think, is a very real thing in the United States. And I think we kind of jokingly mentioned this in the intro, but in the last few years, there are a lot of people invited into powerful institutions and publications and so on that had this kind of maximalist abolitionist rhetoric, which are now being pushed out, you know, and and I think that there's going to be going forward, if I had to make a prediction, there's going to be some degree of hesitancy to invite people in with that same capacity, because then you end up with these institutional conflicts where the entire committee of documenta resigns and the poetry editor resigns and the yes. you have to, uh, you know, force fire the editor in chief and the staff and all the people who sign the letter. And so those kind of conflicts within the institution, this is this is a kind of hand on the stove moment as they're and they're going to remember it going forward. Yes. But I wanted to I wanted to ask you about the general question of web two, because obviously all of the those institutions and publications have kind of lost their market share and their viewership to Web2, and they have to cater to that attention economy dynamic, which dominates everything that gets published and produced in American culture. I'm wondering, you know, when we started this work, I'm thinking of like 2011, the idea that antitrust legislation could be brought against Amazon and Google, like that was unthinkable. Do you see these platforms as having They've obviously grown in power, but do you see them continuing to grow in power? Or do you think we're going to see something like how Bell was broken up and turned into a dozen different companies? You know, there is actual precedence for this in uh, American politics. So, I mean, I am... I'm very skeptical of the the benefits of antitrust intervention in this mm. specific field. I think the only way you're going to dethrone one of these monoliths is by competing with them directly and out-competing them at what they do. On the one hand, you see companies that seemed a few years ago like they were probably old-fashioned desk, you know, Microsoft for instance. Right. They were desktop paradigm, they're kind of a dinosaur. They're actually now more valuable than Google again because of because of AI and because of their investment really? in open AI. They're not like these monopolies of the past where they got one business 
and they're going to try to ensure that no other types of business can supplant that. Like, you know, specifically, I'm thinking of like long distance phone calls. This, they're in a different business and they, they're, they're still having to compete with each other. I just don't really think they're monopolies in the same way. Yeah. Because Amazon and Facebook and Apple, all, all of the thing companies are still in such active competition with each other over every field. That already mm-hmm. seems to be like some kind of balancing. And moreover, I just think like, Google is losing now because their services have degraded and search isn't as good. People are generally not excited to to Google for things. I just think that that's going to be what changes the paradigm is like their products getting worse and new products getting introduced. For, for the listeners who are maybe not familiar with some of the background for this, the argument goes, I'm going to try and briefly summarize both of these things, but uh, Google engages in various anti-competitive practices by requiring different browsers to have Google as their default search engine. And so you have to basically sign an agreement with them and that prices other people out of the market of search. So I think right. the argument that you're making here is that Google's actually engaged in a whole variety of other businesses and search is, it's one thing that they do, but it's not everything they do. Similarly, Amazon has um, anti-competitive practices that they sign with all of the vendors who have their stock, their commodities listed on Amazon. And if you want to have a cheaper price on your own personal website, that is a violation of your agreement with Amazon. So it keeps those prices artificially high. It prices other people out of the market by the size of Amazon. But I guess similarly, what you're saying is that, you know, Amazon is not just logistics. It's also (laughs) streaming. It's also Twitch. It's also web services and all these other things. Whereas the example of Bell Atlantic is only long distance phone calls. There's nothing else. Okay. So let's say, let's calibrate like the best case scenario. Uh, Both of those antitrust, the antitrust legislation goes through. You break Google's monopoly on search. You break Amazon's monopoly on logistics. They still have all of these other businesses where they completely dominate and no one can compete. Am I understanding what you're saying? Well, I I hear your points. Now, what I'm saying basically is if you want to compete with Google on search, you need to make search relevant. And that's what, for instance, OpenAI is trying to do. It's basically search engines as a paradigm, especially advertising-based search engines, is no longer going to be how people access information. That's the best way I think that someone is going to disrupt Google and similarly, the way that you're going to disrupt Amazon with, you know, an infrastructure play is drone. Actually, Amazon is going to be at the head of whatever drone shipment, but some specific actual paradigm shift, which makes, you know, Amazon no longer the most competitive. I'm, I'm sounding very, uh, market, um, fundamentalist here, but. In general, I just think like critique by competing is generally good. And I think even the logic of, you know, trying to introduce a public option to compete with private health insurance monopolies is still an admission of the need for this competitive dynamic to right. like actually help things. I, I think even people, you know, in your audience will kind of understand, <laughs> understand that it's, it's, it's good to have, you know, private competition as well. Yeah, we uh, on this podcast, we tend to cyber bully people on the left who uh, refuse to engage in the economic question because it just makes you look stupid once you talk to anybody who's not on your own side. So that's, uh, yeah, it's very, it's very important. Um, I'm paraphrasing one of your tweets, by the way, when I say that. Let me ask you, though, about this, uh, this larger political economic question. There's an important quote that I tagged from you, which has been something that in the Do Not Research Discord, we refer back to frequently. Uh, And this was from uh, the summer of 2020, where you wrote, massive state capitalist financial intervention plus increasing normalization of the police state is shock doctrining the US into the Chinese model, 
so as to better compete in Cold War II. <laughs> Very, yeah. a, a little, uh, you know, hyperbolic and uh, yeah. uh, Twitterified and whatever. But the sentiment, I think, is is absolutely true. And I have to say that within the last few years, you know, we're talking about political realignments. I was just watching the Realignment podcast where an economist was saying that we need to learn from China. Mm-hmm. And talking about innovation ecosystems and investment and R&D on behalf of the state, all of that has disappeared within the neoliberal period which I think is maybe theoretically flawed and has not borne the fruit that it was supposed to bear. So I wonder if we're seeing some type of turning in the political economic consensus. I have a few examples that come to mind, like the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. You could even pinpoint like the Green Deal in Europe. All of those things are Uh, They're not the result of political activism or any like grassroots movement. It is an elite consensus among the think tank class that's actually learning that we need to steer away from neoliberalism and back towards, I don't know if you want to call it Keynesianism or or whatever this thing is, but at least the state having a direct role. Interventionism of some type, yeah. Interventionism, sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder like, does that then play into this idea of like, Let's imagine a scenario where the state is handsomely funding R&D, and then you have all of these other companies that can compete with those giant Web2 monoliths. Does that then transform the landscape in some important way? Yeah, good question. I I guess I just don't think that, despite neoliberalism, I don't really think that ever went away. Like as far, especially if you're talking about like military industrial situation, like government has been supporting that stuff and certainly supporting, you know, independent research into all sorts of things. And I, what has changed is you see people like, I don't know, like Noah Smith complaining about our shipbuilding capacity. And I do think that there is a centrist liberal economic consensus on, you know, just generally increasing state capacity to build stuff like we used to. So that, that does seem to be like a big change. I don't know if that's like in lieu of neoliberalism or just like extra spending on top of that. But I guess it is going mm. to change. I do think that like that quote, the fact that it's yeah, June 3rd, 2020, it sounds very June 3rd, 2020. After that happened, a lot of those attempts at massive spending got voted down by Republicans. A lot of that, what was happening in 2020 was only happening because Trump was still uh, in power. I don't think we would have seen the vaccine get pushed quite as quickly. I don't think we would have seen as much financial intervention in, into the markets. I, don't, I definitely don't think we would have seen as much just direct payments to citizens if there was a Democrat in power. I just don't mm-hmm. think that Republicans would have let them do it. There would have been much more controversy. Interesting. Yeah, it, it feels very different now than in 2020 on all, all those fronts. Uh, and even looking at what has happened in China, I, I don't claim to have any special knowledge of like the financial situation in China. And in fact, it seems very much like a black box to me. But in general, they were forced to fully roll back their draconian COVID policies because of the impact it was having on their economy. In general, it feels like a house of cards there, demographically, economically, all those things. I don't know if really the US still is as interested in, in copying the Chinese model in all those ways, because there are some very clear weaknesses there and things that are still more resilient about the American system and more flexible. So I don't know. I, I think things have changed a bit uh, in those three years. I'll buffer this by saying that anytime I see news about China, I immediately distrust it because uh, the last like several decades of China has supposedly been theoretically impossible, according to American economists. And then here it is actually existing. And uh, it must mean that the theories American economists are abiding by are incorrect. Otherwise, it could not exist. 
So yes, I think there's a, a pop. I think you call it a population pyramid in China, where supposedly the working age demographics will not be able to generate enough income to support the aging demographics. The population is unbalanced in that way; it's disproportionately old. But this is something that has emerged from the alternative media sphere, where I think I first saw it like percolating among dissident right wing circles, kind of like American nationalist circles. And then I heard about it on Joe Rogan, and I was like, huh, okay, I'm tracking this story. But I still dismissed it. I didn't think it was serious. And then people on the orthodox Marxist left uh, started talking about it, that there's a severe instability in China's housing market. In some of the most extreme cases, people have analogized it to like a 2008 scenario. I think that is, I I think that may be an exaggeration. But I've noticed this coming. But the links that were being sent to me in support of this were like literally from the Hoover Institute and the Federalist. So I was like, okay, it's ideological again. I don't, I'm not going to buy it. And then I follow, of course, this like very fringe international communist organization called the ICC, the International Communist Current, which traces its lineage all the way back to the Italian Revolutionary Communist Party with Bordiga and whatever. And recently somebody over there wrote about the instability of the Chinese housing market. So I'm just tracking this as a story, as a narrative on alternative media. And um, I wonder, you know, maybe it's increasingly credible. The most recent thing I've seen on it is that, you know, the housing market is very fragile right now, but manufacturing is thriving. And so it could be important to disentangle those two things. I'm not sure how Mm -hmm. much the markets are connected, but uh, potentially we could put them in two separate categories. You know, in in talking about the the end of the American century and some of this more dystopian forecasting, geopolitical competition with China is uh, one of the major narratives that shapes that entire space. So, yeah, do you have any? Are you inclined to believe this theory, or are you inclined to dismiss it? If you mean the the theory that China is on the brink of an economic crisis, basically because of yeah, I, I think it's just sort of also it seems like simple economics that they had spent probably far more than made sense on all sorts of infrastructure. And these are things that, again, you know, the American left admires about China, the, the high-speed mm-hmm. rail that they built. But as far as I know, like other than a very few of those lines, they're losing massive amounts of money every day on those things. And, mm. and in general, those spending programs were to kind of paper over the, the actual real weaknesses in the economy. Again, like I said, what I feel or think I know about China, I just... I have so little confidence in that, and I really yeah. constantly yeah, me too, um, me too, distrust the thing. So I, I don't know, and I and I I always you know this term Gelman amnesia. No, what is what is Gelman? So there's a Gelman there, amnesia. Yeah, Gelman amnesia. It's a good term. This American physicist Murray Gelman he described this phenomenon of when you read an article in the newspaper about something that you're an expert in, and it's just complete bullshit, and it's completely inaccurate. And then Gelman amnesia is when you forget that when you read every other article in the newspaper that you're not an expert about <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, but this is probably accurate. So <laughs> it's, so it's sort of like, I, in general, I, I, I feel that a lot about things I read now that I know about that. I think this like Gelman amnesia should be, I think it should be a more famous like pop sociology term than Dunning-Kruger, for instance. I think it's honestly probably more accurately describing like a phenomenon of our time than even Dunning-Kruger, which has of course became like just shorthand for people. But yeah, I just think, especially when I read China, uh, read about China, I just assume (laughs) that this effect is happening and uh, there's various agendas and I don't even know what agendas are at play and seems like a black box. The most important lesson I've picked up from all of this 
studying alternative media and then being in this weird, indeterminate political, cultural trend casting space is um, basically to distrust absolutely everything <laughs> that you read. Uh, yeah. <laughs> whether you're an expert in the field or not, you should be very skeptical of all of it. Yeah, I think that's the that's the the takeaway for sure. What's your media diet nowadays? Where are you where are you getting your like like for me I have like a few sources where I get my like quote unquote mainstream news from and then I have a few different sources where I get my alt news from you know and I try to like make a synthesis between <laughs> what the official story is and then what the radical story is and the truth is probably somewhere in between where are you getting your news from and your uh, your alt media nowadays Yeah that's a I mean still on Twitter, I think that's still a fire hose of information where, you know, obviously they've deprioritized links a lot, so it's less good than it was. But I'm just in like a bunch of group chats and telegrams and discord servers and stuff. And honestly, not necessarily tuned into news in the same way that I have been in other periods. Um, and because of that, I don't even think I can like map it. I'm just like in some random discord servers that I, and a lot of times, you know, they're like, crypto focused or, you know, specific, you know, like in the dark forest. Yeah, for sure is what it feels like. Well, yeah, I also feel like within the past few years, the um, kind of speculative prediction market of dystopian forecasting went from being like a kind of entertaining, creative sci-fi hobby and is now just like this terrible reality that we're having to live. So yeah. it became a lot less fun in that period where it's like, oh yeah, I'm on the receiving end of all of this bad shit. Like this is not, uh, sure. this is not yeah. like a kind of fun uh, sci-fi novel anymore. Uh, speaking though of Web3, this question keeps coming up in different podcasts and uh, different peers that I've been talking to. You know, my background for all of this stuff was that and I think I still do. I, I do subscribe to this kind of Marxist Hegelian teleology of history. Mm -hmm. That frame makes sense to me that society progresses from feudalism to capitalism and then to socialism, that there's a kind of competitive rise of these different classes and struggle and revolution and class struggle is the thing that drives history. There's this other theory. I don't necessarily know if it's competing, but it is certainly parallel. And I hear this from a lot of people who are in crypto spaces where they describe the course of human history as progressing from kingdoms into states and then into networks. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like you've been in a very similar sphere in the last few years, and you kind of, you move between those different cultures and discourses uh, even more expediently and efficiently than I do. And I'm wondering if, uh, do you find those things to be in conflict to each other? Do you find like there's a parallel synthesis of this? Where would you fall on either of those teleologies in the uh, mm. feudalism, capitalism, socialism versus kingdom, states, and networks? Well, I will say that I've definitely become less convinced of uh, the inevitability of socialism over the last couple of years. So I am, I, I generally probably closer aligned to the second teleology, although even that isn't something necessarily that I personally align with. I will say if there's anything that generally makes sense to me as a teleology, it's Landian accelerationism. <laughs> I, I'm not like it's the, it's the closest thing I could say that I have some faith in, and I will say that like just based off of like the singularitarian ideas that I was like kind of I was obsessed with back in 2007 and eight with like AIDS 3D stuff, like seeing how those timelines have Kurzweilian timelines, those seem to be coming pretty true as far as any kind of like prediction. An extension of Moore's law into general teleology, that seems to be still happening, 
even a couple of years ago, it didn't seem uh, like it could was you, happening. Could you, uh, for our audience, Moore's Law, just uh, Mo- uh, Moore's Law. Know. Yeah. So Moore's Law was, it's not a law, but it was a description of a phenomenon where the number of transistors in a chip were roughly doubling every, I think, year or year and a half, starting in the 60s or starting in the 50s. And you can even kind of retroactively fit that to a, to a similar line even before it was described when you know going from vacuum tubes into miniaturization of chips and although that that phenomenon has slowed down the last few years because we've actually reached kind of like physical limits of silicon as computing substrate in terms of like intelligence that we can harness a number of teraflops or whatever floating point operations per second we do that's still basically following this same exponential curve where it's doubling every every year and if we're applying that now to you know specifically ai models that seems to be doubling at a even quicker pace if you look at what was state of the art in ai image generation literally a year ago it was some blurry kind of funny photos everyone was yeah yeah oh Those like Pierre Hui, uh like yeah like exactly. gestalt images that were like blobs yeah yeah i mean just thinking of like of that based off of where mid-journey is now that's that's crazy like that's crazy level of progress and so i i do generally subscribe to that and i think whether or not that means you know this all of the like extinctionism that comes along with uh landian acceleration i i don't know for sure I certainly am not like an LAC or RAC type of guy. I'm more like unconditional accelerationism. This seems to be happening whether we like it or not. There's too many competing forces to stop it in any kind of way. I think we are close to AGI. I I do believe in that and I and I and I, I think you could also if you want map creation of AGI and whatever potentially economic outcomes, you know, that results in to a, you know, Marxist history as well. I don't mm. think Marx would be against the development of AGI to, you know, like liberate uh, people from from menial labor. To do economic planning. Yeah, exactly. That's what, the, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it seems like that was, if there's any kind of like secret sauce to, you know, socialism working, it, it's compute, you know, that I, I do kind of generally believe in that. And I do think that we are very likely on this verge of utter economic cultural transformation that still we can't quite perceive because it it's just happening in this very narrow space but you know i think ai is going to be a massively deflationary technology probably the goods the costs of all sorts of goods and services are going to go down a lot what that does how we deal with that as a culture does that, does that lead to poverty or ubi or socialism I, I i don't know and i don't think anyone can really predict it at this point but certainly upheaval that's happening that's sort of a bit of a side. I, I also think that talking about network states, we we touched upon it earlier when we we're talking about you know monopolies and opening up competition to monopolies. And I think, yeah, I think your audience would, if the audience understanding like the need for a public option, should probably understand the need to you know have alternative you know g- government services in general. A lot of them are bad and inefficient, and probably would be better if there was some type of choice because i think like you know if you're thinking in terms of voice and exit voice as a way of complaining about degradation of services or quality of services it only works if there's a credible exit and that means you know a competing product basically that you can go to or a competing competing nation state uh if it actually means immigration i think we de- we need credible tools for exit that's that's why i'm interested in crypto i think 
looking at what happened with art form and looking at what happened with uh, you know German institutions canceling shows for pro Palestinians. I hope that everyone acknowledges cancel culture is real, and because of that, we need either credibly neutral institutions or we just need new institutions that allow for different types of expression. It seems really obvious that if you see what happens if there's a monopoly on media and everyone gets canceled. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it seems obvious why you would need these these new institutions and you need network states or network institutions because they're going to be easier to create a network institution than to create a seastead, like create an actual physical location. So I do think all those things are connected very directly. So this is kind of like the locus of um, you know the unique space that we find ourselves in, which is being able to connect these different fields. And the thing that always comes to mind when people talk about not just building new institutions, but building new network states, the primary impediment from my side is that those network states, as I understand it, are not going to have monetary sovereignty, meaning if they're operating solely with hard money, that severely limits uh, what those states or institutions are going to be able to do. Why do you think that they can't? Why, why do you think that they can't? Mint their own money just because because you mean like because bit because of like Bitcoin specifically. Well, I think w- one of it is there's a technical impasse for some of them where they can't, but then there are other crypto startups that are proposing network states where they have a kind of not like literally an infinite reserve, but a, they they're withholding enormous enormous amounts of the currency to then uh, distribute it as needed to incentivize and provision different things. Um, but I think there's also an ideological impediment for a lot of the founders who are very much ideologically locked into the kind of the hard money idea, which I would attribute to being part of the faulty assumptions of how currency, how money works in the neoliberal theory of political economy. So if I were to find a network state that proposed cooperative ownership and also reserved like just I'm throwing out random numbers here, but it reserved like 100 trillion of its currency to never be tapped by anyone except to, I don't know, spend as needed for whatever, um, that to me would represent something analogous to monetary sovereignty. But otherwise, I kind of see them accidentally locking themselves into extreme conditions of austerity, where if all that you have is a hard money price signal to direct resources, you're going to end up in an even more stratified, unequal economy, which would be antithetical to the cooperative model of ownership in the first place. So I'm, uh, I just I have not heard that argument about monetary sovereignty from a lot of them. I mean, that's an interesting, yeah, I think that's an interesting and definitely apt criticism, certainly of like Bitcoin based um, attempts at doing this. But I mean, most tokens, uh, maybe there is a hard, hard cap supply. But the the reason why, for instance, FTX got <laughs> into the shit that they got into is because they were definitely had monetary, they had control <laughs> over their own monetary supply. They were printing FTT and using it as collateral. And there are those tools. They still exist within crypto sure, rails sure. to like create new money or create new types of new types of equity. So, I, I wouldn't over-index on that criticism of network states as an idea because I don't think, at least personally, I don't connect it so intrinsically to like hard money Bitcoin logic. That's certainly, I mean, you're not wrong to associate those things at all, but I don't think of it as being an inherent aspect of a network state by any means. It's more just like, I think of it as being like cloud services that you can basically subscribe to. There are definitely going to be more specific, like hard money and like geographically located versions of that. But in its loosest form, it's just sort of like being part of a, a club or a discord. Yeah. It's like it's a, you know, 
it's it's that's a, that's a, that's one end of the of the spectrum. Yeah, something that can start as a Discord can within a few years become a subscription healthcare service. Well, yeah, ideally, yeah. Should we maybe um, explain when you say something like Rails? or terms like protocol. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who are, especially on the younger side, you know, we're, I'm, I'm 36, you're like about my age. Uh, some of our listeners who have recently graduated yeah. from like their BFA program, or maybe they're still in school, they didn't come up with having these conversations in like 2011 when Bitcoin was $1,000. And then extrapolating all these different scenarios of like what a stateless technology and currency was going to mean. When we talk about like yeah. the 100 year scope, what is the most positive scenario? What is the utopian dream that some of these people are trying to build? I will say that I I always thought, and this is from from very early on when I started you know engaging in crypto, like the telos of blockchain and crypto is to eventually serve as economic substrate for AI and other types of autonomous agents to interact with the economy and interact with each other without intermediaries. Mm. And the reason why there's been such a problem finding like product market fit for crypto and sort of like, oh, should we try to appeal to consumers more by making it easier to onboard or should we try to make it more hardcore and more, you know, gray, gray zone, you know, regulatory arbitrage, illegal stuff. The reason why like it hasn't quite worked yet is because like we are not actually the consumers of this technology. We're not going to be the consumers of this technology. Huh. It's going to be for AI agents, for agents, by agents. And the reason why, you know, protocols are needed for that is because protocols are just a set of rules that you kind of have to follow. And so when I when I say rails, that's sort of what I mean. I just mean like the infrastructure that is a set of rules defined by software for the transferring of of information and 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 economic value through certain networks. So it's how it's how the uh the AIs are going to pay each other for compute because the resource consumption is yes. okay. And it's going to be less focused on like holding a currency for its speculative value or collecting NFTs or whatever. It's going to be a way for AIs to just trade uh, equivalent amounts of compute with each other and also I think, you know, and this is also probably will be a wave of human-led investment in the next cycle. I already hear this term thrown around a lot as real-world assets. Hmm. And this was always the hope of NFTs was like, oh, you can represent any type of scarce, valuable thing as an NFT. Obviously, there's huge problems with like connecting physical objects to digital representations of that. That's called the Oracle problem. Still hasn't been solved. That's where you see things like, you know, WorldCoin right. coming in where you have retina retina scans of every human you see you see also the hints of this telos in projects like worldcoin like why do we need proof of humanity oh because there's going to be orders of magnitude non-human yeah. agents <laughs> for, interacting with sorry, each other for um there's going to be a bunch of people who don't know worldcoin or don't know retina scans just to uh <laughs> to lay a yes. little bit of a foundation for this i had a call with a, a friend actually a mutual friend of ours i'll redact his name from the podcast and uh we were just doing sure. a zoom call to catch up and this is someone whose perspective i've valued because he just comes from a, a totally different corner of the world and every few years we have these long calls and we catch up and he had this silver sphere sitting on the side of his his table and it looked like a silver bowling ball with like a kind of i don't know a little like black dot in the middle and he was like yeah this is a startup called worldcoin and you put your eyeball into the scanner and it scans your retina which is similar to your dna like it's entirely unique to the individual it's the only biological marker to tell each unique individual apart from each other without the ability to spoof the tech everyone has a unique retina scan 
And then it deposits in your unique wallet, which is cryptographically and biologically sealed. You get a WorldCoin airdrop of the currency. Um, and so this is a way to index everyone in the world and assign them a unique wallet. And then from that initial infrastructure, I'm not sure what you would call it, you can scaffold on top of that, obviously, exchanges of payments and the most simple aspect, but you can also build perhaps voting infrastructure and all sorts of other kind of democratic tools and so yes, on. UBI. So, so that that's WorldCoin. And that is maybe like in like, let's say, a hundred year or a thousand year scope, the dissolution of nation states and building new publicly owned digital infrastructure, those things then point to very different political economic circumstances. Right. It should be noted, which you didn't didn't mention, is that this is Sam Altman, yes. the OpenAI <laughs> uh, CEO's project. And so that you can, of course, see why he would be specifically interested in this if he's doing both of those things. And he thinks AGI is on the verge of probably re- making us you know, UBI required in some mm. way or another. I think mm. that sort of was his, his logic of doing both projects there. It's also worth noting it's a VC-backed startup. It's by no means like an NGO or yeah, yeah. you know an intergovernmental attempt. So you know it has all those limitations. I think specifically the VC-backedness <laughs> that is a real limitation because VCs expect crazy returns or all, otherwise they don't invest in things. That's that's just going to be a distorting effect no matter what. There's a strange scenario opening up where. The utopian dream of people on the left in the 20th century, you know, beginning with CyberSyn to create a planned economy in Chile mm-hmm. under Allende. AI is a technology that is very valuable to the left to engage in economic planning to finally resolve what we call the calculation debate. Additionally, there's uh, infrastructure within crypto to create models of cooperative ownership, which uh, worker cooperatives have always additionally been a dream of of the left. And there's these very weird um, cultural lines being drawn around some of these technologies. I don't know. It seems like a lot of people who are like in my political corner hate both of them, like and don't want to understand either. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah. I guess is there is this also part of the realignment? You know, it just it seems very peculiar to me that people who are committed socialists are spending a lot of time defending Meta. Google and like other web two lock in type of platforms, which are in a political economic analysis, very similar to feudalism. Like you cannot own anything; you toil uh, at the behest of the yeah. you know the monarch or the uh, the the CEO in this case. In some of these scenarios, do you find that like the possibility for opening up UBI and more left wing alternatives becomes more or less likely? The realignment or sorting that you see is so real and very, very self-defeating for the left. That's for sure. I would say I think it's just a sort of a form of conservatism that you see and just sort of like nihilism too. And nihilism. Yeah, for sure. And I think in general, what you see on the sort of like futurist, whatever, I don't know if you want to call it left or right, whatever, the futurist center is just sort of a kind of sense of optimism and faith in progress and in technology and in human ingenuity, which is just something that is like not considered cool to feel <laughs> on the left. You're supposed to feel it's cool. you're supposed to feel despair about uh, it's not cool. No, that's it's true. Like, that's I true. Honestly, it's it comes cool. down to that. Yeah. It makes you look like a root. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you buy that, you buy that shit. Oh. And then like I, I get that. And I I was I've definitely uh, flirted with doomerism and very much felt that for so long. But I will say, like looking at progress in AI and these types of things, 
I'm just like, uh, it's happening. Uh, I guess I was wrong. Mm. Like I definitely thought we were going to have some kind of like climate change tipping point before AGI. Now it really feels like it could go either way. Huh. Uh, our age will AGI act as some sort of messianic cure for climate change. No, but I, I do think that those are like the two kind of like racing teleological, whatever developments happening right now. Um, I also think that like there's a there's a problem on libertarians building these platforms for exit, like seasteaders, whatever. If you asked them, they would love for there to be a socialist seastead. They would love for there to be a huge diversity, you know, Cambrian explosion. Oh uh, yeah, if I got to hear one more Cambrian explosion you know? from these fucking people, Cambrian <laughs> explosion of governance, baby. Yeah. So in a theory, thousand flavors like, of dictatorship. They're, It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like they want that. They, they, they would love it for socialists to take an interest in this technology and try to like build their own things with it. I'm sure that they would think that they would assume that those experiments would fail and whatever libertarian free market experiments would right, compete right. them. And, but I think there's a misunderstanding that the libertarians have about like exit that I think most people don't really think of it as a virtue uh, or as something inherently. And that's just like this fundamental misunderstanding there where like, most people on the left, they do kind of want there to be some comfortable status quo that they can rely on. And I don't think they uh, want the radical upending of things that they claim to want. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. But well, it's um, I mean, you, you have to disentangle the uh, a democratic exit versus just capital exit, because I think when people hear exit, they think of Cayman Islands and they think of tax avoidance and that kind of stuff. But yeah, if you're talking about democratic sure. exit, like all of those things are uh, appealing and necessary for any kind of left progressive political project. Um, should we talk about uh your work has spanned such a wide variety of fields. Uh, your commentary has been uh, an incredible source of guidance and insight to me over the course of my career. And you are now starting a, a new position very soon. Do you want to tell us about yes, your upcoming job, project? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, tell us what you're up to now. So yeah, so I've um, earlier in the year, I actually made anonym, an anonymous uh, NFT collection that I I dropped and it worked. Like I didn't make a ton of money, but it but it all sold out and I didn't do it under my own name. And that that really did unlock something for me. That that was the first artwork I've made in years, actually. Wow. Um, wow. And the fact that it that it okay, I, I hinted to some individual, you know, I made it, I made the market for it a little bit happen, but that like there was this outlet for anonymous culture production and a way to monetize that instantly. I was like, oh, okay, it's it's still happening. You know, obviously the NFT market is not uh, as as frothy as it was a couple of years ago, but I still genuinely think that like on-chain culture is this credible platform for new types of institutions. I I still believe that fundamentally. After I did that, I started working with this company called Vaporware, which is <laughs> an ironic name because uh, they haven't released so much yet, but they're a company that's working to basically, there's a new kind of software that the developers don't need to host it on a website themselves. You can distribute it and have it be self-hosted on something like Urbit, which is basically like a virtual machine that you individually only have access to and you can run software on that. When a smart contract is deployed, it's on Ethereum and there's basically no way to stop that process because it's been uploaded to this virtual machine. It's it's parallel, it's hosted throughout the world, it's running, you know, right. asynchronously. But what you can do is there's there's a front end for all those protocols where you actually go to the website and you log in and you interact with that protocol using a visual thing. And that's 
a weak hmm. point. So there was a protocol called Tornado Cash, which is basically a anonymizing money laundering protocol. It allows you to deposit some money into a big pool, sloshes it around, and then you can take some money out of that pool and, and anonymizes it. And the government seized the website and you know actually arrested the developer, but the protocol itself still huh. runs. Um, can't stop the protocol. Oh, wow. So this is like, the, this is the real killer app of, of crypto is you do have these unstoppable, uncensorable applications. So I think this is, for me, this is like what clicked for me is like the actual use case for things like Urbit or Urbit itself is you can then have users self-host that front end on their own virtual machine. So you could access Tornado Cash from Urbit, still interface with the Ethereum blockchain, but all through Urbit and through your own self-hosted thing. So the government really, I mean, they could go and individually sanction individual users for using it, but they can't like shut down a website. They don't have this choke point anymore. Mm. So Vaporware is basically trying to offer this type of software as a thing that you can sell as an NFT. So you buy an NFT through whatever crypto rails that allows you to download that software onto your own personal server, but the developers of that software don't need to host it themselves. So they're not liable. Um, and that kind of opens up a whole lot of possibilities that are illegal. <laughs> I was going to ask about it. <laughs> so basically, it basically opens up this credible tool for building new institutions that can't be stopped and are decentralized, self-hosted, and basically, you know, very, very resistant to the types of censorship that you've seen happen to crypto. Hmm. So I'm, I'm going to be working with, with vaporware on generally marketing, branding, development, uh, business development, partnerships, creative uses of the application. But I do think like these types of technologies that like just put a foot in the door and actually open things up. That's super exciting to me and genuinely like what is, what is like a killer app on crypto that you cannot replicate without mm. crypto. And I think we're going to see, you know, more and more of that kind of like hard, like hard crypto, not web three, not the sort of attempt at, at softening it and making it more like web two, but really differentiating it as a different type of paradigm for software development and marketing and stuff. So conceivably you could build an institution that is in some part crowdfunded and you could publish works that are let's say for example something which hits like every algorithmic filter on web2 but it also hits a tos violation on substack or whatever you could rebuild mm -hmm. the protected spaces within which you could have funding but also the possibility of en engaging in those prohibited topics right i mean this this has kind of been the absolutely the struggle for me in the last few years is that i am giving you know really thoughtful criticism about radical politics but in the eyes of the platform and the eyes of the terms of service and the content moderator i look like any other lunatic meme poster who's like uncritically propagating this stuff right. so creating the protected spaces within which to engage in critical discourse around those images and propaganda and whatever um, becomes really really necessary and you know you are at that point talking about a curated space which is an institution, but then requires alternative methods of financing because you can't mount that off of ad revenue. So, okay, okay. Right. I think the other narrative that we haven't really talked about yet is privacy and the increasing need for, for data privacy once we start using AI agents more and we start giving AI agents access to all of our personal data. I think there's going to be some sort of like AI 
data leak Pearl Harbor event in the next couple of years, probably. There, there were already leaks. Weren't there leaks like last week? <laughs> there's there's already leaks, but there's going to be some kind of like major yeah, yeah. fuck up yeah. that will make it very clear to people why you want to have like self-hosted models and self-hosted data as opposed to hosting everything in the cloud and everybody gets access mm. to it. Whether or not it's going to be Urbit or other types of platforms like that was Urbit, my that, yeah that was my next question is like it does it does it have to be Urbit or is it any possible like any service that would that would allow you to self host your own virtual machine as it is now it's kind of the only it's the only one that exists but there are active competitors Urbit is very limited partially because of the esoteric ideas of its founder <laughs> yeah no kidding <laughs> and when 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 Curtis when Kurt, Curtis built the like initial code base and stuff there's there's a lot of I, I'm not technically proficient enough to tell you any of the individual details of this but there's certain ways that are things are done that are very unconventional and the subsequent developers on Urbit sort of just internalized as the way things are because they were the inherited, mm -hmm. but they also limit things like 4K video streaming and scalability and all these sorts of other things that maybe you need to make certain compromises on. So there are competing platforms. There's something called Ukbar. There's something called Plunder. But I do think that that, that, that class of protocol, which is sort of like, yeah, like shared peer-to-peer -peer virtual virtual machines that'll be increasingly important for sure and especially paired with existing uh, technologies like ethereum or other blockchains and in theory you can swap out urbit for something else like urbit and you can swap out ethereum for bitcoin or other blockchains it's just sort of like you have crypto as the sort of economic back end and then you have urbit as your your front end um, where you interact i see with, with the protocols and i think together that's going to be something really unique that we didn't have the last cycle really um, at all, the last crypto market cycle. It should have been obvious from the beginning, but we kind of assumed that social media would just last forever. It does seem to be like the obvious example now is that there are very few incentives for young people to seriously get on Web2 social media. You know, you can have a viral hit that brings you traffic and, uh, you know, bootstraps your career for like an afternoon. But the idea that you can continue to do that forever is uh, just uh, clearly not true. And it has not worked to the benefit of journalists or writers or creatives or artists or musicians or, you know, any, anybody involved in any creative sphere. So, you know, having those other types of engagement, I think, are a distinct possibility in the near future. Future. So, you know, as always, I, I look to your work and your research as a, a point of foresight. And um, yeah, it's it's incredibly fascinating to me. Is there uh, any links that we should send people to as we uh, sign off for the podcast? Or, or where where should people look to find what you're putting out next? Keep following me on on X. On X, yeah. <laughs> I'll be posting. It's very funny. It's very funny just to call it X. <laughs> I'll, I'll be posting on uh, an X. Uh, there is a website for Vaporware that we can we can include. They, they have a they have a pretty good explainer uh, about what Vaporware is in general. Uh, I will say that they are they're planning kind of a bit of a pivot in the next year. Or so look out for that because that's going to be sort of my job mm -hmm. is is helping with them you know, shift shift their strategy a little bit. So um, I do think that there's going to be some exciting stuff there. Daniel. Thank you so much. Thanks so much Thanks for having for coming me. on yeah. the podcast. Just uh, such admiration of your work and it's wonderful to uh, to catch up. Likewise, it's really good to get on again and chat about all this stuff. More again soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Substack or Patreon. 
find me on socials at Joshua Citarella. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.